The year was 2009. Uh, Kate and I had just moved back into Manhattan with our two cats, Cole and Scout, after we had lived out on Long Island for two years. And uh, we moved into an old apartment that was part of our church's property complex on Stuyvesant Square. It was a part of the old rectory. Our apartment was part of the old rectory of St. George's Episcopal Church, which is a big historic church in New York, the construction of which was largely paid for by J.P. Morgan. His name is on the pulpit, of all people's names to put on your pulpit, (laughs) J.P. Morgan. Uh, Anyhow, it's an old place. And uh, our apartment was basically a one-bedroom apartment inside uh, the old rectory. And it technically had a second floor. That's what they called it. This so-called second floor would be considered an attic crawl space here in Mount Pleasant. But this was New York. So in New York, if you could get a human being into the space, then it qualified as living space, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Uh, Even if the human being had to average the size of, like, Sarah Cuthbert, you know, like, (laughs) her head would have touched the ceiling. So... um, uh, but, you know, uh, I, we still made it our guest room. We put a queen-size bed in there. And uh, I always wondered why nobody ever came and visited us and stayed with us that year. But um, on a day-to-day basis, we just used it as a storage space and put boxes and things up there. And I said, as I said, this apartment was very old. The building was built uh, in the 1860s. And so that meant it had all sorts of cracks and spaces and, you know, walls that didn't fit quite right together after all these many years of splitting the place up into apartments, you know, and kind of half-funded church renovations, which uh, it was definitely known for. And uh, I came home one day, and I called for our cats, because I would do that, and they, were, they functioned a lot like dogs. So they would come running to the door looking for love and looking for hugs and, you know, and uh, petting and all that. And that day, only Cole showed up at the door. And so I was like, okay, well, Scout's probably uh, sleeping somewhere. So I went looking around at her usual places in the apartment, usual chairs and things that she would find, and I couldn't find her. So I called Kate, and Kate was working downstairs in the church office uh, that was on the base floor of this building, and she came up to help me look. And we searched everywhere. I mean, we looked all over the apartment, up and down. We went on to the second floor, even, and looked up there, and looked all over the place, and there was nothing, no sign of her. And normally, when we would call her, we were calling her name the whole time. When we would call to her, she would often make a little squeaking sound. She would just squeak and let us know that she had heard us, and she'd usually come running. And it was total silence. So my stomach was in my shoes at this point. You know, I was uh, very scared. I was imagining her lost in the walls of this building somewhere or that maybe she had gotten out and was fending for her life on the streets of New York City. You know, and that's a city where the rats are as big as she was. So it would have been a rough one. It was like one of those stereotypical hero is lost, everything is going wrong scene, you know, in like a, a Disney cartoon. So... You might think that this is a little bit of an overreaction, but you need to remember this is before we had kids. So these cats were like the most important things in our lives. And uh, aside from each other. And if you have pets, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you spend most of your time slightly annoyed with them, right? (laughs) 
You know, you're slightly annoyed with the pet when they're around because they just make messes and they get in your way when you're trying to do something. But when there's a threat of losing them, you realize how stinking important these little furry creatures are to us, right? That you just are desperate to keep them around. It rocks your world. So we looked everywhere, top, top and bottom, and we were praying fervently. And for some reason, I just had the thought, I should, maybe I should look in the boxes that we had on the second floor. Now, I thought that there was no way anybody could get into these boxes. Some of them, most of them were taped, uh, and I, so I hadn't checked them before. I didn't think she could get in there. But then one of them was actually not taped. It had the four flaps kind of over interlocking. You know how you do that? And uh, so I still thought there's no way she'd get in there. But I open it up, and she was curled up in there, happy as can be, totally asleep. <laughs> and I realized that she was able to get on top of that thing, and her weight pushed it down just enough that she could sn- sneak inside the box. I don't know if she could have gotten out, but either way, she was having a cozy nap, and we were so relieved to find her. You know, I, all my horror scenarios went away immediately, and I picked her up and gave her big hugs and brought her downstairs, and Kate, you know, hugged her too, and we rejoiced together, and we even, you know, talked to her in silly baby voices, the things you do. <laughs> These are the things you do. It was embarrassing, but you guys weren't there, so it was great. And um, we, we were so happy, and then I taped that box shut. So that was <laughs> the end of that. But if you've ever lost something of real value, something you really value, then you know what that feeling's like, that desperation to get the thing back or to get that someone back. Nothing else matters in that moment. It's as if your world stops. And in many ways, that's exactly what happens in your, your life personally right then. Your world stops. It comes to a halt. There's nothing more important than finding what matters to you most. Everything takes a back seat to your search for what was lost. Because you're thinking, life won't be the same without them. I can't think of, I can't imagine life without them. And you know the joy and relief you feel when you find them again. It's pure elation. It's like finding new life after death. Life can begin again when you find them. Well, this is the radical picture that Jesus gives us in these parables today from Luke 15. He tells the parables, the very famous parables of the lost sheep, and the lost coin. And his main goal in these passages is to show us God's heart for us. God's heart for us. His radical love for the lost. And why do I call it radical? Most people who believe in God today think God's a loving God, right? So why wouldn't he love the lost? Well, it's important to note who Jesus is talking to here, his audience, Luke tells us that sinners and tax collectors were coming out to hear Jesus teach and preach. And the Pharisees see all of this happening, right? The religious leaders see this happening and they grumble. And they begin to say, uh, Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. And this was not just like a casual observation. You know, they weren't saying, oh, look at that, sinners that are eating with Jesus. It wasn't a casual observation. They were actually making a harsh judgment on Jesus right here. They were appalled that he would hang out with such riffraff, right? With such losers, because that's how they viewed these folks. These are sinners and tax collectors. And it was indeed a violation of the law to them, that a righteous person must not associate 
with an ungodly person because you become guilty by association. And Jesus wasn't just associating with them. He was eating with them. And that means he was having table fellowship with them, which we've talked about before. Here, it's the same as saying, these are my people. I'm one of them. So he was communing with them in a very personal way. A so-called holy or righteous person would never do such a thing. And the Pharisees noted this. So did the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus knows that they're thinking this, and he knows that the, that the sinners and the tax collectors are listening too, the regular folks. So he tells them these two parables. He tells them about the shepherd who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And he leaves the 99 out in the open country, it says. And he goes to find the lost one. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And as he returns, he calls all his friends and tells them to come over. We're going to have a huge party. And then he says, there's a woman with the ten coins. She loses one and she lights a lamp and sweeps her whole house, moves all her furniture until she finds that one coin that she lost. And when she does, she calls all her friends and tells them to come over and have a party with her. Not only is Jesus wonderfully inclusive with his stories, I don't know if you caught that, but he's using illustrations that both men and women could have related to at this time. But he also wants us to see the inherent value of each object. The inherent value. It's a little easier to to understand the value of the sheep. Uh, You know, after all, sheep are cute, right? And they're alive. And it's like, you know, our cat Scout, you can understand somebody having an attachment to that sheep. Maybe the shepherd really liked that one sheep. Um, You know, it's an understandable thing. But the sheep are actually very similar to the coin in that they're both sources of provision for the owner. A shepherd's livelihood depended on his sheep. That's how he made a living, right? And the coins for the woman would likely have been her life savings of an average woman at that time, 10 silver coins. One of those coins would basically equal a a day's work. So uh, it was very valuable. And many scholars think that the coins actually probably were her dowry, represented a woman's dowry that she was given when she was married. So they weren't just any coins. They were actually uh, enormously valuable to her in a sentimental way, not just a monetary way. So you see the two objects both have these symbols. They're both symbols of uh, intrinsic value to us, but also of emotional value. They're objects of love. And Jesus wants us to see how God sees us by choosing these objects. He doesn't make a mistake here. We are that important to him. To the point where he's hinting that God actually needs us on some level. These were objects of provision for them, right? The shepherd needed the sheep. The woman needed those coins. And that's a very strange thing for Jesus to highlight because God doesn't need anything. God is perfect. He is literally the one true self-sufficient one, the three-in-one. But Jesus is telling us about God's great love and his great desire to love. Okay? We say it in communion every week that in your great love, you made us for yourself. That's how we open up the great Thanksgiving. 
God made us so that he could love us. And now that we exist, he is in a sense, Jesus is saying that in a sense he's not, he doesn't feel whole without us because he made us to be the objects of his love. He wants us. He wants us. And he wants to love us. What an amazing thought. The primary purpose of your existence is to be loved by the Lord of the universe. I like the sound of that. I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty good. And the radical nature of this becomes even clearer when you consider the fact that it would have actually been a normal thing for a Jew, the average Jew at that time, these Pharisees, to think about God welcoming, welcoming back a penitent sinner. Jewish scholars have studied these uh, parables, and they agree that God would certainly welcome back a penitent sinner. You know, somebody who had recognized their wrongs and was working hard to make things right. A rabbi would say, of course God would welcome that person back. But what Jesus is saying here with these parables blows that up. Because he's saying that God seeks after sinners. He goes after them. Before they've done any repenting. Before they do anything deserving of his love. And Paul, a former Pharisee, picks up on this. When he says in Romans 5, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is making a dramatic claim here. That God goes after those who are lost. It's a new idea to his audience. And frankly, it's a new idea to us too. Even though we think we like the idea of a loving God, which I said earlier, we do think we like that. But most often we prefer him to be passive. When it comes down to it, the way we actually live our lives, we prefer God to be kind of passive, and we like to be the active ones. We want it to kind of hang on us. You know, our idea of God is usually of him being available whenever we reach out to him. You know, he's always there for you, but I just got to reach out. Or, you know, it's kind of like that loving grandparent that makes you feel really good when you hang out at their house, right? You go to visit them, and it's great. That's kind of the way we think about God. But the energy is always moving in the same direction. It's coming from us towards him. We need to reach out to him. We need to make the visit, right? We need to call grandma. We need to do the work so that then we can receive the love. He's loving all right, but he's not going to interfere unless we want him to. So it hangs on us. And that was the Jewish perspective. That's what uh, many Jewish scholars have said, that this is actually the Jewish perspective. They're like, of course God will welcome you back if you work harder and turn around your life. But that's not what Jesus says in these stories. Jesus chooses his objects carefully and makes them completely incapable of seeking out their owners. Sheep are not like dogs and cats. Uh, we actually had a professor at Trinity, our school and seminary, that was a, sh- he was a shepherd before he became a priest. So he had all these wonderful insights about the sheep passages. And uh, he would say that they have no real sense of direction. That's why you have to have a dog and, a, you know, one of the big sheep canes. I don't know what you call them. Crook, thank you. You know, you had to be able to guide them because they didn't know where they were going. Um, they didn't have a sense of direction. They didn't know their way home when they were lost, like a dog or a cat might. And also, they're not able to take care of themselves. That's something I've shared in here before when we've talked about sheep, that they're actually known to literally eat themselves to death if they find a really great patch of grass. You have to keep moving them along because they'll just keep going. 
They don't know how to take care of themselves. So the image of a sheep is one of powerlessness right off the bat. But it's even more exaggerated when the sheep gets lost. A lost sheep is effectively a dead sheep. It's either going to die because of its own inability to take care of itself, or it's going to be eaten, right, by someone else. It has no power to change its lostness, even if it's aware of being lost. Even if it knows, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, it doesn't know how to change that. It must be found. That's its only hope. And the same is true for a coin. It's even more true for a coin, right? A coin is literally dead. It is inanimate. It is not alive. So when a coin is lost, that's where it's going to stay. If a coin is lost, it's going to stay wherever it is unless someone searches for it and finds it. It cannot make any effort to be found. It cannot move. It cannot speak. It cannot do anything. It is like a cat sleeping in a box in the attic. It doesn't even know that it's lost. Okay? That's what a coin is like. And Jesus uses these images because he wants us to see our situation that clearly. He wants the Pharisees and the sinners and the tax collectors to all hear that radical message because no matter how bad or good they thought their situation was, the same is true for all of them, that they still were thinking like we naturally think, is that it hangs on me. God will love me if I turn myself around. Then he'll accept me. Now, you might make a big objection and say, well, Jesus says heaven rejoices over a sinner that repents. Okay, so there's the part that brings us back to that seemingly safe place where it's our activity and God's kind of passive. You might insist we need to repent. And I would say, yes, we do. But don't undo the story that Jesus is telling us, that Jesus is teaching. Don't miss the radical nature of what he's saying. The Pharisees wouldn't have missed it, okay? They would have heard that and say, whoa, hang on. God seeks after sinners? What are you talking about? That's what they were saying right then. Jesus is hanging out with sinners. That is a no-no. So they didn't miss it. And the sinners and the tax collectors didn't miss it either. That's why they were coming to hear Jesus. Because he was saying something different, all right? He was saying something different from that same old thing where God will passively accept you when you are actively coming back to him. Jesus says the opposite. He says that you will repent of your sins when you have been found by God. When God comes after you and finds you and gives you his grace, you will repent of your sins. It will be a response. Any repentance on our part is a response to God's activity in our lives. The proof is in Christmas. All right? I don't have to make this argument too heavy, I don't think, because it's all about Jesus coming and surprising everybody on earth. Nobody was looking for him like this. Our repentance is always in response to being found. We are like the sheep and the, the coin. We are as good as dead in our sins until he comes and finds us and gives us new life, gives us new hearts to want something else, to want something other than our sin. That's when repentance happens. We know this. Scripture says it very clearly that it is God's kindness 
that leads to repentance. It's him coming for us. And the awesome news that we have in this third week of Advent is that God has come. He is the shepherd. He is the woman. He goes to whatever lengths necessary to find his lost possession. That's you and me. To bring us back home. He doesn't stop until we are found. He goes all the way to the cross. Right? He goes all the way to death itself to find us because that's where we are. We are dead in our sins without him. And so he goes to the grave to bring us back. As Robert Farrar Capon wrote, Jesus finds us in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. (laughs) We all would prefer that you would find us in the garden of improvement, right? We love HGTV. We're always improving things. We would love for him to find us there. That, you know, he's just like, oh, you're doing great. You just need a little bit of a boost. That would be lovely. But that is not what happens. He finds us in the desert of death. And that's good news. That's really good news for us. Because it actually means that we're really saved. It actually means that when things don't go right, that he's actually not going to let go. Because if, we, if it depended on us being in the garden of improvement, what happens when you fall back into sin? What happens when you lose your temper with your loved ones on Christmas? Not to say that's ever going to happen to any of you or has ever happened in your lives. <laughs> but what happens when you don't hold it together? The good news is that God has come to find you. He goes as far as he needs to go to bring you back, all the way to death, and brings you to new life. It all hangs on him. He holds on to you. And when he does find you, he puts you on his shoulders, and he carries you and rejoices. He hugs you and loves you, and he probably speaks in embarrassing baby voices to you. I miss you so much. I'm so glad I found you. Come back home with me. He takes you home. Finding his lost ones, you and me, is his favorite thing. It is his joy. That's what Jesus wants us to hear. There's more celebration in heaven over finding one who is lost than anything else. There's nowhere you can go where he won't find you. He's going to throw a huge party in heaven for us. What an amazing thought. He made you so that he could love you. And he makes sure that he gets to love you. He comes and finds you wherever you are. That doesn't stop. It doesn't stop once you get saved. Because we still get lost. I still find myself lost in areas of my life where I have not been aware of my brokenness or I've been ignorant of kind of the way I'm handling people. And God comes and finds me there and shows me that and brings me to new life in that place. This is how he works in our lives. He keeps coming after us. He never stops. That's good news. And as we say in Advent, he will come again. And he will take us home to be with him once and for all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this awesome news that you come after us, that you seek after the lost because you love us and you bring us home. We are of such value to you because of your love. And Lord, I thank you for that good news today. I pray that you would bring that home to our hearts and our minds, especially in those places that we keep secret, especially in those places where we feel like you would reject us, 
where we don't feel like we're in the garden of improvement, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would hear this good news, that you find us there, and that you bring us new life in those places. I pray, Lord, that you would use us to share this good news with those around us this holiday season. I pray that we would be messengers of your awesome, awesome grace that you seek to save the lost. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all of this. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.